before we jump into this week's episode, and for those who haven't already, be sure to follow the show on Instagram. It's a fantastic way to support the show and to get a behind-the-scenes look at how we edit the episodes and what the raw, uncut interviews are like. So to learn more about us and to keep up to date with new episodes and behind-the-scenes videos, follow us by searching at The Risk Equation Podcast. Now on with this week's episode. Friday, April 26, 1986, Pripyat, Ukraine. It's the middle of the night, and as most of Soviet-ruled Ukraine shuts off, at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, engineers continue their work. One twenty-three a.m. The engineers begin a routine testing procedure. Five hours later, somewhere in the Ukraine, an illegal BBC radio broadcast echoes through a small bedroom. Mental control to regional studios and switching centres. We now present from Studio A, Alexandra Palace. It's now clear that the Soviet Union has suffered one of the worst disasters in the history of nuclear power. Massive quantities of radiation have apparently been released in an accident at the Chernobyl power station in the Ukraine. The man listening grabbed his phone and called his daughter. The man's daughter was Dr. Alice Shapiro, a paediatric haematologist who lived just 60 miles away from the explosion in Kiev, Chernobyl's closest major city. The news of a nuclear explosion in the Soviet Union rocked much of the world. Within the USSR, though, life continued as normal.
I learned about Chernobyl explosion from my dad, not from the government. My dad, who was listening to the Voice of America or BBC, this was his favorite stations, and he was able to listen to these uh, programs only between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. when the the recording was not jammed by Soviets. So he listened to that at five in the morning on the day of the explosion, called me at six, it was Saturday. I was really a little upset that he is calling me so early. And he told me that uh, there is a nuclear explosion at Chernobyl. And I said, well, so what? So my dad, shared this information and uh, really nothing happened. Saturday, Sunday went as usual. I didn't know anything, nothing on the TV or any other media outlets. But the rumor started on Sunday. What prompted the rumors that some people had relatives in the United States or other countries around the world. And that how they became aware that what happened in our 60 miles from where we live. It's extraordinary to think that this uh, historic event um, and this incredibly dangerous event for so many people in the vicinity didn't reach your attention except by virtue of partially blocked broadcasts from countries that were literally thousands of kilometers away. That's just extraordinary to me. But was that in surprising to you at the time or was it just sort of expected that you were not going to get information from the government about things like this and that was the way life was? Because it, it seemed shocking to me, but I wonder whether living in that environment, if it was in fact shocking to you. You know, I didn't have any event to compare because this tragedy of such magnitude never happened before. But from the past, looking back, everything was uh, different levels of lies and uh, not uh, revealing the truth. So again, looking back, nothing surprising from this viewpoint, but with this uh, the magnitude of this world catastrophe should have been treated differently by the Soviet government. Tell me about what it was like to go into work on Monday morning after you'd heard from your father a few days before that there was potentially a catastrophe at a nuclear power plant that you previously didn't know existed. And then you're hearing these rumors on Sunday and all of a sudden you have to front up as a doctor and not just any doctor, but a pediatric hematologist who I imagine would be of special interest with regards to radiation effects on children and so forth at a time like this. What was that Monday like? It's really difficult to remember exactly 35 years ago, but I think that I do remember every minute or every hour for the entire time. I didn't have any diary, but it was so emotional that that's why I remember that. So Monday was, again, very traditional. We came to work 
And uh, in Kyiv, we didn't have offices, one per person plus window. We just uh, maybe seven doctors, all physicians, all hematologists were in one room, sometimes even sharing the desk. One telephone, not cell phone, just landline for the entire room. And we started our day as usual, seeing patients. And then in the middle of the day, the director of the Institute of Hematology called and asked who is the hematologist on call. There was a rule in our world that because we were one of the leading institutes in Ukraine, each of us had a duty to be on call probably two or three months per year. If in any part of the Ukraine, any area, small village, big city, smaller than Kiev, there are cases that either doctors could not resolve in terms of diagnostics or patients had uh, resistant to treatment, they would call one of us, you know, just for advice. Usually a clerk would call and ask who is on call and make this all arrangement. But this was the director of the Institute who never called with such requests. So he asked who is on call. And I was the one who picked up the phone accidentally. And I said, it's uh, my turn. And he said, well, uh, in an hour or two, the ambulance will pick you up and will take you to some place where you have to be. And I said, yeah, that's fine. No other explanation, no details whatsoever. The only question I ask, uh, should I tell my family that I won't be um, spending night at home? And he said, I don't know, you can figure it out. And he hang out. And of course, everybody who were in the room, in our office, shared office overheard the conversation and one of my colleagues came up to me and said, do you really wanna go? I said, first of all, I don't know where, but I have no choice, it's my mom. And my friend and colleague said, you know, you do have a choice. I got in fight with my husband this morning and I really don't wanna go home and see him tonight. So why don't I go instead of you? And when my month, you will go instead of me. And I said, well, great, of course. And we already had plans for that night you know, with my family. And uh, the ambulance arrived and my friend was wearing, I clearly remember that skirt and short sleeve shirt and she was wearing her white coat so she just got her purse nothing else and stethoscope and the ambulance picked her up and uh, she left and uh, later we found out when she came back that she was in one of the most contaminated places. She did not wear any protective gears, nothing. She was wearing her 
clothes. She had her purse and her watch on her hand. I think for two days, we didn't see her. We didn't know anything. And then the ambulance brought her back and she looked really pale. She was sent home, but on her way home, the suggestion was, or rather order, that she will stop to the Institute of Physics, which uh, had all the dosimeters, meaning these instruments for radiation to measure levels of radiation. So she stopped at that institute and uh, people who work there, scientists measured the radiation levels across her from the external part her body, her purse, shoes, watch. So the end of that episode that she had to throw away everything, absolutely everything, because uh, the dosimeter just went off scale and it was no way that she would ever be able to wash off these particles from her purse or watch. Moreover, her hair, she had long hair, also showed high levels of radiation and she tried to wash it off, but it didn't work. So she got her hair cut and... What what happened to her after that fact? As far as I know, She's doing well. She lives in Kiev. She continues to work. And last time I saw her 15 years ago when I was invited as a speaker to represent the United States to the international conference dedicated to 20th Chernobyl anniversary, which took place in Kiev. So we got together and... Uh, she didn't want to oh, any rumination or any memories about that. So, and I, I understood that. So, I didn't ask any questions. It's difficult, in some ways, to imagine both the, the level of terror that comes with the unknown of what you're being exposed to once you're aware of what's going on. But then also the courage that's involved in persevering despite that. And I'm just interested in the first instance, in those first few days when there was such an unknown, how were people reacting to that situation? Were they getting on with business? Were they frustrated and angry with the government that there was no information coming, particularly as physicians who were in some ways more aware than others of of the threat that was around people without them realising it. What what was the state of the department and yourself and your colleagues in those first few days and weeks? I can say that everyone reacted differently. People who had more information like, for example, myself, I was lucky that I had friends and my colleagues from different 
institutions, for example, Institute of Physics, I had a friend there who called me and said, uh, don't drink water, don't drink tap water, don't even brush your teeth, have your daughter stay home, don't let her go outside. And at the same time, the government was preparing to have this May 1st parade that everybody went outside. There was no warning. There was encouragement from the government, go and participate in May 1st parade. And I've heard that and also I've heard truth from my friends. So I, of course, locked my daughter on lockdown and she was sitting on the windowsill, which is also was wrong, but I didn't know anything about that, that when there is radiation and air, just stay in the middle of the room, don't stay close to the windows. But I placed my daughter still was better than outside and she was watching the demonstration and parade. They we lived in the center of the city, so it was coming, you know, along our streets. We were able to see it. So my reaction was, uh, I started realizing the truth, but the majority of people was not even close to learn any truth. The doctors, some of the doctors um, who were really panicked and did not want to provide any help to the patients, for example, internal medicine doctor or emergency room, it was, I just want to stress, it was not, you know, unique reaction from some doctors I've heard, oh, I have a patient and I told him, I am not going to take care of him. And the patient came completely with symptoms completely unrelated to radiation. And the doctor said to him, no, I'm not going to take care of you because we, what's the point? We all will die in the next couple of weeks. My dad was a pilot during World War II, and one of his friends was still working uh, as a civil engineer at one of the largest airports in Kiev. And he called my dad probably four or five days after the explosion and said something very weird is going on at the airport. The planes were taking off the entire night carrying carrying uh, children and grandchildren, family members, the Communist Party leaders away from Kiev. They knew the truth and they started evacuating their children and grandchildren in the middle of the night, not saying anything to anybody. 
just the idea that Communist Party leaders, uh, at the same time as telling people to go out on a Labor Day parade or a, a May 1st parade, are surreptitiously sneaking their family members in the middle of the night out of the major airport. It's just, there's a sense of betrayal in that, that, that even 35 years down the track and not being in any way related to that experience, I feel viscerally just this frustration at the fact that there's such a hypocrisy. Tell me about the patient load that came, because when everyone was evacuated from that initial 30 kilometre radius around the disaster site, of course, there would have been a tremendous number of children that were affected by the disaster and the fallout. Um, what did that look like on the ground, the evacuation and then subsequently the environment in the hospital? Many of the patients were evacuated to Kiev. Some of them went to different places, but lots of them came to Kiev. And lots of them came to our hospital, other went to other hospitals. So we really had hundreds of children that we had to meet, greet, triage, and really not understanding what's going on. You know, many of them had just regular children diseases, viral infection, bacterial infection, some you know, food poisoning, absolutely not related to radiation, but having not any training or any knowledge, we try to distinguish what symptoms related to radiation and what were not. And we used only our intuition, our teamwork, all, you know, our minds came together and we tried to understand what's going on and uh, some instructions from higher doctor's positions where, oh, you have to touch, palpate in medical term, their thyroid gland and see if anybody has enlarged thyroid, which now so, so, I'm sorry, sounds so, you know, funny because after 10 days of, after the exposure, nobody in the world would have enlarged thyroid gland. But again, people try to make some connections from what they're learning, what they've heard. But some kids were sick. Again, I still don't know what caused that. What I do know that none of the children who were evacuated from the dangerous zone had acute radiation syndrome, none of them. Some of them developed leukemias, cancers later on, but acute radiation syndrome, it requires high doses those who were in that area did not have high dose exposure. And also one of the you know, factors that uh, people will have radi acute radiation syndrome, it's these dose would be developed in a short period of time. So firefighters, liquidators, they did have acute radiation syndrome. Tell me about how you found information at that time about radiation syndromes and, and sickness and what, what was available to you at that stage? 
Um, one day, uh, shortly after the explosion, my uh, supervisor asked me to go to the library, get any book about or journal about radiation and uh, prepare a presentation for our medical staff, just some basics about radiation, which was of course a very legitimate and proper request. So I went to the medical library in Kyiv, which is a premier library best in Ukraine. And I asked the librarian to give me a few books and journals about radiation so I can prepare myself and uh, increase knowledge of our personnel. And the librarian told me that they received an order from the above to remove every book or journal which has word of radiation in it. So there was empty shelves in the top medical library because all the books and uh, mag and journals were not on the shelves. In medical term, it was shock. And I don't know how better describe it. Shock, disbelief, probably these words would cover my feeling or express my feeling. This was the position of the Soviet government. No knowledge, no panic. Of course, many, many deaths could have been avoided if there were any preparedness for this disaster. Not aware they will not think properly. They will not, and if they don't think, they cannot diagnose the problem and then subsequently they cannot treat it. When did you first end up being sent to one of the contaminated or, or more contaminated areas. How, how did that come about? Well, I just was asked to go there and uh, moreover to be a so-called field team leader. And uh, I had two other doctors with, my, with me on my team. One was endocrinologist and another one OBG. And again, this was, uh, you know, this combination of doctors was not very proper because at that time, again, endocrinologists by palpating the thyroid gland would have zero knowledge. For me as a hematologist, I was asked to palpate all the glands, uh, lymphoid gland, lymphatic glands. And uh, endocrinologist's job, I'm sorry, OBG um, job or assignment was to palpate testicles. And um, this is one of the most contaminated areas, three of us, but at least we thought we have instructions, we know what to do. 
but it was very difficult because there were so many kids. Endocrinology colleagues, she started crying saying, I cannot take it anymore. How many times I can ask kids to do this one after one and uh, OBG was also on the brink of <laughs> crying. You say, I want to go home. I cannot do this anymore. So I came up with a plan which worked. I said, now we'll have only boys in the room. And uh, I will ask, and you guys just listen to me on my one. They all get their arms up and I run and palpate all the glands underarm. On my two, they all drop their pants and you, Mr. Miss OBG, just run and palpate their testicles. And it worked perfectly well. Kids were happy, they were laughing, they were telling the next upcoming team that it's real fun. And my two doctors felt real well. So that's how we saw that. What was it like to come home after being in those areas? And and knowing, I guess, as a scientist that you were extremely contaminated and you were coming home to a family. You had a daughter, of course, at that time who was very young. Um, tell, me, tell me about the experience of, of what it was like to walk back into the house, knowing where you'd been and what you'd been doing. Coming to the house again, I even I didn't think about myself. I did not understand that I have to. Well, I of course change my clothes, but it was just a habit, not because I thought it has to be either washed or just thrown away. I didn't have these uh, insights. What I did once, I got a, a dosimeter. It called it Geiger counter that a friend of mine smuggled from his place where he worked. So I will be able to crawl across my apartment and see what's going on. So I turned this Geiger and uh, I was going from, we had, I think, two, two rooms, yeah, in my apartment from one room to another plus kitchen with this Geiger counter and it was off scale. So I started throwing things on the floor, linens, everything that I was touched with this dosimeter and flowers outside on the balcony. I thought that I will get, get rid of everything because everything had so high external levels of radiation. And then I saw my daughter who was holding tightly her favorite staff, a staff animal. And um, I yelled, just don't touch the animal, let me see it. And I moved the dosimeter from one part of the animal to another. And the animal was fine. So my daughter was about to kiss his nose and I said, wait, I didn't check the nose. And I moved my dosimeter to the nose. It was so contaminated that I 
pull this poor animal from my poor daughter's hands. Um, but then I try to put myself together and I realize that if I throw away everything in my house, what will end up sleeping on the floor, which also was not great, or eating with our hands, what should I do? So everything except of the poor staff animal, which I trashed, went back to its places and uh, business as usual. You had a, um, a, a really, in, in some ways, a, a serendipitous group of friends or colleagues in the apartment complex where you were because you were able to score some resources from the physics department um, in terms of finding a Geiger counter. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that group of people and, and what it was like to bond together with them and, and how you navigated that disaster as it occurred? It was a really, really wonderful group of people and we helped each other as much as we could. So I shared with them the information that my dad told me so they are aware that their kids should stay at home. Those who were more in science, like physics, not in medicine, shared with me their information. They brought, for example, also smuggled a map which showed the most contaminated places in Ukraine which, when no one ever was able to get a hold of it. And we started looking through the chart we invited a few friends that we trust because you know sharing such kind of information was dangerous for the person who is doing that because he or she will just in the best case scenario lose lose her job or his job would never be able to get the similar one in the worst case scenario you could just go to jail for spreading this information so we were we shared it with friends that we trust and same trust uh, came from their side so they are being together and sharing information and supporting each other was very important how do you protect yourself in an environment in which like you say there are such stakes involved in getting truth it's almost orwellian in a way it's like this idea that even trying to get right information can send you to prison and you don't know exactly who you can trust in that environment. How did you protect yourselves when you were trying to create that, that circle of truth in, in a world that was so full of lies? No, I didn't think about that at that time. Absolutely. I thought about more about other people, how they handle this. And uh, I try to be truthful as much as I could, but you know, having these orders from above, you cannot tell the truth. It was very difficult to balance.
It took a full 18 days before the Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev made any public pronouncement on the nuclear disaster at Chernobyl. We were recently stricken by a disaster, the Chernobyl nuclear power accident. It deeply affected the Soviet people and disturbed world opinion. The accident, he told his countrymen, has now claimed nine lives and injured 299 others. He tried to explain what went wrong. The power of the reactor suddenly increased. There was a considerable discharge of steam, and the subsequent reaction led to the formation of hydrogen, its explosion, and the destruction of the reactor and the accompanying radioactive discharge. Work at the damaged reactor, he said, has been heroic and has succeeded in controlling the danger. It was possible to limit the damage thanks to the bravery and expertise of our people and their devotion to duty. The level of the radiation in the area of the power station and the immediately adjacent area still remains dangerous to the health of people. The highest priority task right now is to eliminate the consequences of the accident. Gorbachev thanked his socialist bloc allies for their solidarity in the face of the crisis, and he expressed gratitude to the team of American doctors performing emergency bone marrow surgery on those most badly injured. But his mood changed when discussing the way the Reagan administration, its Western allies, and the Western press responded. What we were up against was a vast accumulation of lives. When did things start feeling more normal again? At what point in time did the initial disaster management and, and the sort of the transition towards people being aware of what was going on and how it was being managed, when did it start to feel more like how it had been before or did it never feel like it was normal again after that? It never felt as it was normal, never. I left... Uh... Three years after what happened, I immigrated. And for three years, I never felt a normal day for different reasons. One was that kids who were, for example, outdoors waiting for the buses to be evacuated, spent hours outdoors and this radioactive showers were falling on them then one girl I believe two years after was diagnosed with leukemia and she was admitted to our hospital and uh, I was one of the treatment physicians and also there were something that really affected me the I knew that there is an Institute of uh, Radiology will be opening in Kiev just for the purpose to have all the scientists who can move the radiation projects forward and all the patients who were from the um, that hard or red zones will be coming to that hospital. All the equipment, everything uh, would be there, like top of top of the art. And uh, one day, my boss uh, or supervisor asked me to have a private conversation with him, and he told me that uh, this institute will start functioning, and he would like me 
to join him where he will be the director to be a part of the staff, higher position in research and still lots of clinical things. And uh, that what I thought, this is my dream because after seeing how badly we need drugs against radiation, how badly we need experience and uh, to provide help, I was just above the clouds that I'll be joining this institute. So this became you know, like obsession of my life. And I was looking forward to that day. But then uh, days passed, weeks and months, and uh, my boss was still working with us, but he was away for a while. And of course, we knew that he's very involved in this new project and of course, to be the director, it's a great honor. And uh, one day I was really upfront and I asked anything, any projected time that I could join you and be on the team. And he was hesitant to answer, but then he said, I wanna tell you something that I showed three candidates including myself, to join the Institute to the health minister of Ukraine because he needed his approval for such high-ranking doctors. And minister of health had no problems with two other candidates, but when he saw my last name, he said, what is this? Not even who is this? He said, and what is this? And my favorite doctor who was my chief said, well, it's not what, she's one of my leading doctors. She got her PhD when she was 28 and she took care of patients after the disaster. And the minister said, no, she cannot be here. It's, it's, Unfortunately, a reality that we still face today, this sort of discrimination for really no purpose or, or re- rational reason at all. But it's amazing to think of it being so explicit. I'm just trying to think of that in the context as well of World War II, because, of course, in the 1980s and when you were growing up a little earlier than that, we're just in the shadow of World War II and the horrendous, unfathomable suffering that Jewish people went through in that time. You would think, of course, that that would be weighing heavily on the minds of people in the subsequent decades, but it doesn't seem like it really had any impact at all. After I learned that, I came home crying and I said to my now ex-husband, we are leaving. And that when, when the decision firm that, yeah, and I definitely didn't want my daughter to go through all that and this one of the last straws or maybe leading straws that made me and my family to leave Kyiv in 1989. To learn more about Dr. Allah Shapiro, Search for her book titled Doctor on Call, Chernobyl First Responder 
Jewish refugee, radiation expert. To see more of the show and to keep up to date with new episodes and see behind the scenes videos, follow us on Instagram by searching at the risk equation podcast. As always, thanks so much for listening. 